This is Food for Thought Friday, when I try to ask big questions that you can chew on over the weekend. The question today is, how much should a coach make? I'm not talking about an owner here. I'm talking about a coach who's doing fitness training as a profession, not a hobby, a professional coach. What should they make? There doesn't exist a benchmark. There doesn't exist a certain professional standard. More than almost any other professional field, a fitness coach's wage is determined by their entrepreneurialism, or in my case, intrapreneurialism. Dental hygienists aren't required to go get their own clients. Hairdressers typically benefit from the clients coming to the salon, not going out in the street and finding their own clients. But there are a few metrics that we can look at to determine what should a coach make. First, let's talk about scale. In previous episodes and in an upcoming book and at the Two Brain Summit, I talked a lot about levels of work. Level one, level two, level three, level four. Most fitness coaches would fall at the third level. They can diagnose a problem and choose a corrective action from a wide variety, a menu of pre-existing options. Most fitness trainers are not developing a brand new technique, what they're doing is learning techniques and when to apply them optimally. That puts them at a level three. Owners would usually set at a level four, and that's kind of difference. An owner expects to earn an entrepreneurial wage. It could be zero, it could be a million dollars a year, and it all depends on their business acumen. Only in the CrossFit field do we blur that line between coach and owner, and we tend to think that a better coach makes you a better owner, that there's no clear line between a coach who's an employee or a subcontractor and the gym owner who's an entrepreneur and CEO. In fact, we tend to think that doing one job better automatically makes you good at the other job. This myth was a lot more pervasive even five years ago than it is now, and I'm glad to see that change coming. Minimum wage was made for level one jobs. People who don't have a lot of choice, they come in and uh, just fulfill a checklist. You know, they're doing the exact same thing in the same order with the same people wearing the same clothes every day. Level two is a step above level one. They're basically enforcing uh, the policies and the procedures that the L1s are doing. They might have a little bit more responsibility, but it's not. It's just like unlocking the door on time, closing up the cash drawer at the end of the night. Level three have more responsibility still in that their interactions with the client are not pre-scripted. They're one-on-one. Their answers might be limited to the client's questions and problems, but they usually know exactly what they're going to be doing with that client in advance. At the other end of the scale in the service sector, you have some orthodontists and surgeons making millions of dollars a year. What's the difference? Why does a fitness trainer or coach fall toward the lower end of the service spectrum while a surgeon might fall at the top end. The difference is urgency. Greg Glassman has a great speech about swim coaches and lifeguards, how you hire a swimming coach that you won't eventually need a lifeguard. But when you do need a lifeguard, only a lifeguard will do. And that's the role that surgeons play. When you need a surgeon, no personal trainer will do. If you're having a heart attack and you need a cardiac surgeon, No amount of cardio on the treadmill is going to fix you. It's too late. We are far more likely to spend money when we have to than when we should. Let that sink in for a minute. Preventative healthcare, preventative medicine earns us a lower price tag because of the perceived value. People don't think, this is an emergency. I have to get 5K in today. Instead, they'll think, this is an emergency. I'm having a heart attack. 
that's one limiting factor to the wage that a professional coach can earn. Closer to us on the spectrum would be registered healthcare professionals. And I refer to these people as RHCPs in my books because I deal with them a lot and that's how they call themselves, an RHCP. These are folks like a physio, massage therapist maybe, an occupational therapist, a speech pathologist. A lot of these folks in our area will command a salary between eighty dollars and $100,000 a year. But why is that? Well, again, the sense of urgency is higher. You don't go see a physiotherapist until after you've hurt something. So you want to get fixed right away because you're in pain. Most physiotherapy, even most chiropractic, is not preventative. It's reactive. Yes, they have more education. Are they changing lives more? I don't think so. Not in a lot of cases anyway. Should a fitness trainer earn as much as these folks? Maybe philosophically, but the reality is that we probably never will just because the urgency to use our service is much less than the urgency to use theirs, and that's why they can command a higher price point. In fact, chiropractors are a great case study here because most chiropractors were not making a lot of money until colleges of chiropractic were founded. Another way to ask this question is, What does a professional coach need to make to have a good income and a good living? For this, we can turn to price indices. We can look at standard of living costs in different cities. For example, and this is an example of how they can vary widely, I'm Canadian, so I'm going to use the two biggest cities in Canada, Vancouver and Toronto. If I'm living in Vancouver, my purchasing power is 18.2% lower than it would be in Toronto. That means $100,000 in Vancouver is worth $82,000 in Toronto because everything costs so much more on the West Coast. Here are a few others. If I'm living in LA, my purchasing power is 14.45% higher than in New York. I need to earn $14,000 more if I live in New York than if I live in LA. Purchasing power in Gainesville is 26% lower than in Charlotte, North Carolina. These are two that are quite a bit closer, just Gainesville is that much more expensive. Purchasing power in Philadelphia is 26% lower than in Pittsburgh, and they're in the exact same state. Purchasing power in Calgary is 14.2% higher than in Edmonton, which are only a couple of hours away. Purchasing power in San Diego is 18.63% higher than in San Francisco meaning my dollar goes 18% further in San Diego than in San Francisco, I can make 18% less and still have the same quality of life in San Diego that I would in San Francisco. So these are the things that you have to take into account. And I'm actually giving show notes today. Usually I don't do that for Food for Thought Fridays, but you can find a blog post on twobrainbusiness.com with uh, the cost of living and the next infographic, which is the happiness benchmark. In our mentoring practice, we teach that the most important metric of all is happiness, getting to perfect day. Now, that obviously means tracking a lot of numbers. It means tracking the seven areas of excellence that we teach in Two Brain Business. But what it all comes down to is what will make your people happy. So I want to take 30 seconds and introduce the happiness benchmark. As your income grows in general, your happiness increases, but only to a certain point. For most of the U.S., that point is around $70,000, but we can break it down more. We can go state by state. 
When you reach this happiness plateau, your earnings might continue to increase, but your happiness generally doesn't. So this plateau is the one where your basic needs are covered. If we look at Maslow's hierarchy, you feel secure. You're having some fun with your friends. You know, you've got a little jingle in your pocket, but you're still planning to go to work tomorrow because you're going to need the next paycheck. You probably have two to three paychecks in the bank so that you feel secure but not secure enough that you're going to retire yet. So let's look at the happiness benchmark for all 50 states, courtesy of the Huffington Post. In a lot of middle America, so I'm talking Texas and shooting straight north, maybe a little bit east and west, the happiness benchmark is only $65,000 a year, going up to about 75. Where if I look at the extremes on the coast, California, D.C., that happiness benchmark has to rise $85,000, $90,000 or above before people will actually report that they're happy, that they've reached this plateau where more money won't actually make them happier. Now, there's an obvious correlation between the happiness benchmark and earning indices. If $65,000 in Texas will go the same distance that 85000 will in California, obviously we're hitting the same level. So what are the other things that we can look at to determine whether a coach is making a good living or not? To me, these are external metrics. Can the coach afford to buy a house and a car? For example, somebody earning fifty dollars or $60,000 in my city, Sault Ste. Marie, could afford both those things. Somebody living in Vancouver, where my sister is, would definitely not you're going to need at least 100000 and you're probably not going to be able to buy a house on your own with $100,000 a year in Vancouver. How do we know what's right for our coaches? We ask them, what is your perfect day? And then we say, how much income do you need to get there? I'm going to bet that that number is a lot lower than you think. A lot of coaches are going to say, you know, I just want to own my house, own my car, be able to take care of my family, have some time off. And this is exactly what we should be working toward, not always chasing that gross revenue or that gross headcount per coach. More is not always better. Happy is better. Take a look at these infographics, and I think what you're going to find is that our targets are maybe way off. As an owner, should you be aiming for eighty-five to 90000 a year? I think it's a good start. I think an owner should be looking to make a lot more because you've taken that financial risk. And you know, I spend all day talking about what an owner should make. But an owner and a coach are not the same thing. If you own a gym, I hate to say it, but a lot of the coaches are replaceable. Look at how many of you are hiring part-time coaches instead of full career coaches. Your clients should interact with your brand, not create an icon problem by forging this lifetime relationship with one coach. This is how you make a sustainable business. This is why you made the jump and I made the jump from coach to owner so that we could create a cash flow asset while we're changing people's lives. The difference between the owner and the coach is basically that willingness to assume risk. The coach would rather stay at level three because that's what makes them happy. They get to come to work. They get to work almost a shift. They get to change people's lives. They don't have to worry about whether their paycheck's going to bounce or not. You, the owner, are taking that risk, and so that's why your reward should be larger. Now, if your coaches are making more than you, the owner, then we've got some bigger problems. But the key to remember here is that what makes you happy as an entrepreneur is not necessarily what makes your staff happy, your coaches happy. Focus on getting them to perfect day. And while there is no benchmark metric out there that's going to work in all cases, I think I've got a couple of things here that are going to help you. So what should a coach make? Think that over this weekend and enjoy it.